Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Thank you for joining us today and welcome. This is an hour dedicated to understanding a little more about ourselves, our beliefs, and how we approach enlightenment. Indeed, an hour devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we think as we do. An hour for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, now every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show was all about uh, Nick Redfern's book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon. Michelle wrote, your show was great. I wanted at least another hour to hear more. Good job and thank you. Mark wrote, I enjoyed the show today with your guest about the pyramids and the Pentagon. I would like to hear what he has to say about Atlantis and Lemuria. Richard wrote, what an intelligent viewpoint on all the weirdness in this world. Crystal wrote, just want to say I love the radio program with you and Ravinder. Jennifer wrote, if you want a great read and you want to challenge what you believe, Eldon Taylor's What If is the best, the hardest, and the most difficult book I have read, and I love it. Also, check out his website where you can find the patented InterTalk technology. I love Eldon's work in his radio show with Ravinder Taylor. Now, that's a very nice one, isn't it, Rav? I mean, they're all nice, but you get what I mean. Yes, I uh, do. Very nice. Victoria wrote, thank you for providing this free material. This is a real lifesaver in these hard times. Bless you for helping us to help ourselves. Now, for all of you out there, do remember that we have a number of InterTalk MP3 programs that are yours for the downloading. They uh, are the real deal, the patented and proven effective InterTalk technology. And you can get yours by simply going to InterTalk, I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K dot com. Margaret wrote, I'm the chaplain at a juvenile correctional facility. I have students who are severely depressed, traumatized, hypervigilant, and frequently violent. I also have a zero-dollar budget, so your free MP3s are almost certainly life-saving. Thank you so very much. Peace and blessings. Sherry wrote, whenever I need a boost in my life, I listen to self-motivation CDs, Soaring Self-Confidence, and Intertalk Subliminal Audio Program by Eldon Taylor. Just brilliant, Eldon. Well, thank you, Sherry. I do appreciate that. We like those kinds of comments, don't we, Rav? Always, always. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming. And once again, I thank you for your feedback and continued support. Now to today's show, A Mindful Nation. The subject of mindfulness is definitely high on my list of favorite subjects, and as such, I write often about both mindfulness and mindlessness. Our guest today has written a book all about the advantages gained when a nation becomes mindful. Is this the same kind of mindfulness that is spoken about in the psychology community, or does it differ? I mean, is this some form of positioning, spinning, or context framing? as with the modern approaches to that old spinster practice known as propaganda and so tag, stealing the term from the Catholic Church's use for the correction of heresy, mind you, by its papa, Edward Bernays. When a person is mindful, they are alert, fully present, one might say, and aware of the various manipulative factors that can influence them. 
factors ranging from their own physical condition, neurochemicals, etc., to the context, together with one's implicit assumptions, biases, and the like. Is this the kind of mindfulness our author is speaking of? And if so, is it possible for an entire nation to become so aware? According to Wiki, the psychological use of the term mindfulness refers to a psychological quality that involves bringing one's complete attention to the present experience on a moment-to-moment basis or involves paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally, or involves a kind of non-elaborative, elaborative, I'll get that out, non-judgmental, present-centered awareness in which each thought, feeling, or sensation that arises in the attentional field is acknowledged and accepted as it is. Can any nation, any people as a whole, especially one submersed in the continual divisive rhetoric that we see every day, ever be non-judgmental and mindful? Well, that may be a good place to begin with our guest today. Congressman Tim Ryan was first elected to represent Ohio's 17th District in 2002. He currently serves as a member of the House Armed Services Committee and on the Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities as well as the Subcommittee on Readiness. Congressman Ryan also serves as a member of the House Budget Committee, and he serves as co-chairman of the Congressional Manufacturing Caucus. Before his election to public office, Congressman Ryan served as president of the Trumbull County Young Democrats and as chairman of the Earning by Learning program in Warren, Ohio. He began his career in politics as a congressional aide with the U.S. House of Representatives in 1995 and later served as an intern for the Trumbull County Prosecutor's Office. He holds a law degree from the University of New Hampshire School of Law, formerly the Franklin Pierce Law Center, and he is the author of the new book, A Mindful Nation. It's a great read, I'll tell you that. I must admit, I love the philosophy, or I'm going to put this in quotations because it's what he uses, the way, as he refers to it, as espoused in his book. Quoting from his Amazon blurb, This new way is based on the timeless and universal practice of mindfulness, the natural capabilities of our brains and minds, and the core American values of self-reliance, stick-to-itiveness, and getting the job done. So let's get the man in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Congressman Tim Ryan. Great to be with you. It's indeed our pleasure, sir. Uh, to begin with, you heard the setup piece. Do you honestly think it's possible, as submersed as we are in this continual div- divisive rhetoric, to ever get to that non-judgmental place? And if so, how and in what way? Well, I think uh, there's plenty of opportunity for us to uh, move in that direction. Uh, I'm not saying we're going to live in some utopia, uh, but I think we can make strides in the moving uh, in that direction. And it doesn't mean you don't have discernment. It doesn't mean your brain doesn't work and you don't analyze things. But I think what we can do is begin to tone things down a little bit. I think we're coming from, uh, in many instances throughout the, the last few campaigns, the place of fear, anger, high levels of stress and anxiety. And what the neuroscientists are telling us is that when you have a lot of stress uh, in your brain, in your body, 
your mind is not functioning properly. You're not able to actually engage your prefrontal cortex, which is where you make decisions, where you have your working memory, where you're able to balance your emotions. So I think so many of us are so stressed out at this point that we're not seeing clearly and we're not looking at the problems of the nation clearly and we're we're caught up in some really bad habits now. And I think a little touch of mindfulness uh, as we can infuse it into the different institutions can begin to change the trajectory of our country. Boy, you know, I so totally agree with you. Philip Zimbardo, past president of the APA, identified uh, a few years ago that about half of the population that deals with um, stress, that is unidentified stress, the kind that you're talking about, where there's all this fear-mongering going on continually, uh, eventually manifests symptomology of uh, psychopathology. So... um, I think it's important from more than just the standpoint of how our government works, the uncivility or incivility, I should say, uh, seems to become more and more heightened. But with that said, maybe I should, before I ask you any more questions, ask you to define mindful in the context that you have in your book, please. Well, I think you hit it on the head. I, After thinking about this for a long time, I think uh, John Kabat-Zinn's definition of uh, uh, present moment awareness, focusing on the present moment on purpose, uh, and uh, present moment awareness, uh, focusing on that on purpose, and non-judgmentally. And that's not to say that, as I said earlier, you don't have discernment. It means that you are aware of uh, what's inside of you, what's, what's coming up internally for you, and how that may delude the way that you're looking at a problem that's in front of you, um, and therefore you're not seeing things clearly. And I think, you know, a lot of the decisions that we've made as a country have been from us not seeing things clearly. And I, you think the, the most obvious example probably is the war in Iraq. I mean, there was all this hype and the, the stress and the anxiety and the war drums. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone says, well, you know, Saddam Hussein had something to do with it. And everyone's like, well, let's go in Iraq then, you know, and it's like, whoa, hold on. What's happening here? Let's let's look clearly here. Now, what was coming up for us together in the body politic, the memories of Saddam Hussein, the the fear that we were we were having and all of these things. So I, I like John's definition of of con- focusing on the present moment uh, non-judgmentally and doing it on purpose. Yeah, now, you know, Chris, you've said a couple of things here, and, and, and you are a politician, and this is provocative enlightenment. So, you know, um, one, of, one of the things that you, of course, have expressed is that when the Iraq uh, affair um, took place, we were coming off of 9-11 and, and the nation was galvanized with a common enemy. But Congress, I mean, Congress, of course, totally supported it. So Congress was going along with that war drum. It wasn't really, uh, you know, Democrats versus Republicans at the time. And maybe there was a misinformation, weapons of mass uh, destruction, etc. But all of that, to me, uh, is just the artifacts. When you talk about the prefrontal cortex making the decisions, we're really looking at about 10% of the decisions that are made. 
the nucleus accumbens, which is in the unconscious, is actually making about 90% of our decisions. And it is driven by all this information that we take in uh, that, say, as in the instance of 9-11, all has to do with the fear and the drumbeat, as you have identified it, as opposed to a rational process. How do you see mindfulness stopping that prefrontal reaction long enough to take a look at the context and the and, and the framing that's involved and our predispositions that would otherwise force a decision from our unconscious. Well, from my understanding, and again, I'm not a neuroscientist and you know not a psychologist or not even a mindfulness teacher, but what I think would happen, and I just from my own life experiences, when you uh, are in reactive mode, uh, you react. You are stimulated and then you react to something. And my concern and what I think, where I think mindfulness has helped me on a personal level and that I think it could help others is that uh, when you have a stressful situation, I find that mindfulness allows me to be able to deal with that stress that's happening immediately and then calm myself down to be able to then re-engage my prefrontal cortex as opposed to working from that place of of fear, of emotion, and to getting back to, okay, I know I'm upset because X, Y, or Z happened, or I know I'm scared because I'm watching this on the news or whatever, to say, okay, that's just a thought. I'm reacting to that thought, but can I somehow main, maintain some composure? And what I would say is, you know, I, I use uh, athletics a lot when I try to explain this because it's been such a personal reference for me. We watch, whether it's Sunday football or basketball or the Olympics, you see an athlete get presented with a very stressful, high-pressured situation, and somehow they're able to feel that, deal with it, but then, boom, they're be, they're able to come back to the kind of almost zen-like present moment awareness without bringing all that baggage with them. And I think right. there's an opportunity for us to begin to, uh, within our school system, within our healthcare system, is, and this is not going to say that everybody's going to be uh, Kobe Bryant or everybody's going to be Michael Phelps or everybody's going to be a highly tuned athlete, but it's it's a matter of degrees and it's a matter of moving enough people into a little bit more awareness that we could maybe prevent some of these things from happening. You know, it, uh, my own personal experience, and I've had the good fortune to work with a number of elite athletes, athletes really get the point that you're making, how important the mind is, how important stilling, distilling, yeah, stilling the mind is. Uh, in fact, I just read a recent study that shows that meditating on compassion actually boosts the neural basis for empathy. Um, yeah, and, 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 and when I say that, I'm going to ask you this. Now, you're a congressman. And when you talk about mindfulness, obviously you're talking about meditation. I can remember um, when I was involved in law enforcement years ago, uh, chief of police, a friend of mine, called my home. 
housekeeper answered. He said, you know, is Eldon there? And she said, no, he's meditating. And I didn't hear the end of that for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you get ribbed about it? How is it? How are you treated when you talk about, hey, you know, hey, guys, let's just slow down a minute, still our minds, uh, and, and maybe meditate? I do get ribbed a little bit about it. And, uh, you know, it's all it's all part of it. Um, but I also have people rib me about it, and then when everyone else leaves, they say, hey, wait a minute, can you tell me about what you're really talking about in your book, A Mindful Nation? Tell me what this mindfulness is, because I'm really stressed out, and I may not run again for re-election. I've got a family, i got kids, i got all this pressure, and I'm feeling really fried. You know, tell me, tell me what this is that you're talking about. And I've noticed with members of Congress from both political parties, from the Tea Party wing of the Republican Party to liberal Democrats, say things like that. And I, I really think that, as you said, you know, people get have a certain perception, but I really believe that that's changing. And I think there is an openness today that we really haven't seen. And I think it, it's all the negativity in the news, it's the million different news channels, it's the 24-hour news cycle, it's all the different uh, radio stations, serious whatnot, it's, uh, it's the amount of texting that we see our kids doing these days, three to 4,000 text messages a month sent out by the average teenager. Yeah. It's the fact that everybody sleeps with their, with their iPhone or BlackBerry next to their bed, so you're always on. And I think there's an openness today just trying to figure out what in the hell are we going to do? I mean, really, like, what in the hell are we going to do? Are we going to keep going down this road? And it's not just the technology. It's the, the level of inequality. I mean, I, I don't know if anyone's read reads The Economist that listens to your show, but I just finished this week's Economist. And here's a pretty not conservative, economic-leaning magazine, international global magazine, right. um, that had – a, a whole article and a whole section on the level of inequality around the globe now and how uh, income disparity has increased for two-thirds of the people in the world since, like, 1980. And this is becoming a global problem, and we see it in the United States as a middle-class squeeze with health care, energy costs, education costs all going up, income staying stagnant, the financial collapse and everything else, but it's happening around the world. My point is that when you get the, a magazine like The Economist having a major uh, uh, opinion about the level of inequalities we're having uh, around the world, that means it's a real issue. It's not just the liberals saying there's unfairness here. Now you have The Economist saying this level of inequality is so high, it's starting to stagnate growth because it's, it's, it's so dangerously unequal so, and unequal. And and so you you throw all that into the stew, I think you get a level of openness from average people in Ohio or wherever saying, wow, yeah, what are we going to do? And here comes a congressman from Ohio who's not a liberal from California or a liberal from New York, but comes from Youngstown, Ohio, and says, hey, look what I stumbled upon as a 30-some-year-old Italian-Irish Catholic football player from Ohio and it's really helpful for me, maybe, and look at the science behind it, and look that the Marines are doing it, and Google's doing it, and General Mills is doing it, and Procter and Gamble's doing it, and Target's doing it, and look at all these institutions that are studying it. Maybe this is maybe this is what we give a shot. 
Yeah, and, and you know, of course, I can remember my mother saying the mother of invention is necessity. And maybe we're not inventing anything when we take time out from mindfulness or from meditation, but it is the necessity of the time that you're addressing the, as you say, the 24-7. Now, you, you, you have yourself, you're the Ohio congressman that is, as you say, not the liberal from California. Uh, and, and you, of course, talk about mindfulness and meditation. So now this is provocative enlightenment, and we do ask some tough questions here. I know you know that. So uh, according to most who fly the conservative flag of some type, self-reliance is not what our entitlement policies are all about. They argue that as fewer and fewer Americans pay federal taxes and more and more Americans go on the federal and or state dole of one kind or another, that the idea of true self-reliance, and when I think of that, I think of Emerson's essay, uh, the classic definition of what self-reliance means, that that idea is lost. Like Greece before us, here we come, they say. Now, you stand up for the values that tend to sometimes flatter the conservative and ignore your, your own party, that of self-reliance. But as you've just said, we also seem to have an unfair um, disadvantage going on around the world right now by way of the distribution or access to wealth. So how do you how do you handle this in your own party and how do you how do you find the compromise within yourself well it's obviously uh, very complicated <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, i think what i like about mindfulness is that it and i talk about in a mindful nation is that this transcends the current political spectrum in so many ways because Mindfulness is very much about self-reliance. Mindfulness is very much about individual responsibility. Mindfulness is very much about how can we teach human beings the skills that they need to be able to tap their own potential. And so I think it transcends. I mean, John Kabat-Zinn's phrase of uh, applying mindfulness to healthcare is about participatory medicine. You must participate in your own health uh, and well-being. And so I think in that regard, it, it can it can kind of cut through the normal political divides that we have and really ask people to um, take care of themselves and, and, give, and, and teach them how to fish, not just give them a fish, but actually teach them how to fish. And I think mindfulness is, is about teaching people uh, how to fish. Now, there are clearly uh, hurdles uh, within the current systems that we have. And what I talk about at the end of the book is one of the things we can begin to develop from a leadership perspective, and that's why I, lo I love seeing this uh, mindfulness in, in corporate America, and that's why it needs to be in government more, and I think infused in the society. One of the things you begin to see uh, is a, a level of interconnectedness, you know, that you don't always see right. if you're just stressed out and you just maybe see and hear what's going on and you don't connect the dots. And I think that the level of insight that leaders can begin to see and the level of interconnectedness can help us reshape policies that are very much 
I'm going to ask you to hold that thought, Congressman. We have a, a hard break coming up. When we come back, we'll go right to interconnectedness. We're speaking with Congressman Tim Ryan about his book, A Mindful Nation. I had to tell you, it's a great read. This is a wonderful idea. As far as I'm concerned, I, I mean, I couldn't recommend this any more strongly than to just say, go get this book. If you're not already in our chat room, this is an excellent time to join in the conversation. Just go to eldentaylor.com forward slash chat. We have a video there of Congressman Ryan today. Be sure to stay tuned after these words from our. Close your eyes. Imagine your goals and dreams. What's preventing you from accomplishing them? Most often we are our own worst enemies. I can't. I'm not good enough. It's time to reprogram that inner dialogue. Replace all those negative self-images with, I'm good. I am powerful. I can do anything. Eldon Taylor's InnerTalk patented subliminal technology does just that. Researched at numerous universities such as Stanford and by governments such as Mexico and Germany, InnerTalk has repeatedly been proven effective at changing your self-talk. Stop imagining your goals and make them a reality today. Visit www.intertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Intertalk.com. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you, I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, now expanded, updated, and revised. It will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Congressman Tim Ryan about his thoughts and ideas as expressed in his marvelous book, A Mindful Nation. But before we get back to today's show, a couple of points of business. I want to remind you to like our Facebook fan page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. As a fan, you'll always know where we are and what's on next. I would also like to invite you to join me on Facebook while you're there. And one last point. I just got off the telephone with Lisa, producer of George Nury's Coast to Coast. I will be on Coast to Coast this next Monday evening for two hours. So be sure to join at three hours. I'm sorry for three hours. We have the whole three hours. So be sure to join us on Coast to Coast this next Monday evening. All right. Now let's get back to a mindful nation. Before the break, uh, Congressman Ryan, you were explaining the importance of interconnectedness. I'm really sorry that I... I had to cut you off there. Please pick it up, and, and let's go from there. I don't remember your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. You were I explaining. Gonna, I, I was talking about interconnectedness and uh, from a leadership perspective and how important uh, I think that is. For us, from the government side especially, I mean, we're, we're, we're really in the process of 
should be in the process of recreating the government, recreating the institutions that and the systems that we have uh, that were set up basically for an industrial age. Uh, we have these big silos, these departments of health, department of education, department of this and that, and very difficult time uh, getting folks to really see how the, a lot of those things are interconnected, how education and health and wellness is all interconnected and how that actually can lead to better math and science students, which would have an effect on our energy policy, which would have an effect on um, our research and development, have all these things, uh, how our neighborhoods look. And if we begin to see uh, our communities and our country and our governmental structures uh, as systems, as interconnected systems, and begin to shape them to be more interconnected and to recognize how we have to do this in order to solve our problems. I just read a thing the other day about how poor schools are primarily located in poor neighborhoods and how that has such a huge impact on the success or failure of the school. Right. So why should the Department of Housing and Urban Development have one thing going over here and the Department of Education have another thing going over there? And my idea would be with mindfulness and looking at this and seeing some insight and seeing some interconnectedness, how do we begin to tie, for example, this is just one idea that I have, but how do you tie the edible classroom idea to where you get these kids in a school learning how to grow food and feed themselves within the school and tie that into the uh, curriculum of that school, but then that also feeds out into the urban gardens and urban farming that can happen into neighborhoods. Um, where we have a lot of dilapidated structures, and especially after the foreclosure crisis. So how do we come in and knock down those homes, put up urban farms and urban gardens, and then tie that into the local school, and then you tie that into the curriculum? And so these kids are growing food outside their school, but they're also in the summer and after school going into these urban farming and urban gardening programs, and then learn how to prepare food and healthy food and what, so on and so forth. You can begin to see how we really need to connect these schools to the neighborhoods, and there shouldn't be silos of, okay, no, this is the school property, this is the neighborhood. So if it's the neighborhood, it's the Department of Housing and Urban Development. If it's the school, it's the Department of Education, and never the two shall meet. We need to look and see how this can all be connected for a more effective uh, process for educating our students and redeveloping our neighborhoods. You know, you ought to be running for president. We have too much specialization in government, and that that encumbers government. And that kind of specialization actually encumbers the specialization in sciences. In the, in the past, has actually encumbered the progress of science. And and as we saw with nine eleven, specialization in the intelligence world uh, encumbers intelligence. If there isn't this collaboration, isn't this sharing, isn't this broader perspective? So so how do we get you to do something bigger than in just Ohio? Well, uh, you know, I was on the appropriations committee and in, in, uh, before the Democrats lost in two thousand. Uh, in, in 10, and then I'll get back on next year. And what I really like to do is to use my position on that committee to, and that's the committee, it's one of the most powerful committees in Congress, is, and I'm gaining seniority, is to use that position really to begin to start to do what I just said. I mean, you know, first of all, I'd like to infuse mindfulness into 
our school curriculum and create little pots of money for innovation or beef up the current pots that we have for schools to get grants to begin to train their teachers in mindfulness. How do we get our teaching colleges to begin to uh, get teachers trained where mindfulness becomes and social and emotional learning become standard uh, curriculum for a school, uh, whether it's a college that's teaching teachers or um, for retraining teachers that are currently in schools. How do we get uh, uh, medical schools uh, to teach doctors how to and, and provide some money for these medical schools to begin to go down this road. And eventually, you know, they'll have to fund it on their own, but some of the graduate medical education and whatnot should be geared towards mindfulness so that doctors are actually present when they're listening to their uh, patient. They're actually there for them and, and paying very close attention. And once they become skilled in their own mindfulness practice, which hopefully they would develop through school, through all the years of medical school, and learn more and more about it, they will begin to teach their uh, patients about mindfulness. So again, here you go. I mean, here's another, here's another uh, way of looking at how this can get infused. You've got kids in a school that are learning mindfulness. Uh, they come home, there's a parental program, like we have in the mindfulness and social and emotional learning program we have in Youngstown and Warren, Ohio, um, that I got a grant for a couple years ago, there's a parental component. It's only three or four sessions, but the parents begin to learn about what the kids are learning about emotional awareness and whatnot. Then this parent goes to a, a, get a health checkup. Uh, their stress level's up. Their doctor says, hey, before I give you this prescription, I want to I wanna, uh, teach you how to meditate for a couple weeks and try it out 20 minutes a day or whatever, and then come back in a couple weeks. We'll see if your blood pressure's still up or whatever. Um, that parent starts to all of a sudden say, well, wait a minute, they're teaching this to my kid in school. My doctor's teaching it to me. I'm starting to feel a little bit better. Maybe there's something to this. Um, and you begin to see how you, we can infuse this. You have in the military now, um, the, the Marines, for example, are very excited about a mind fitness training uh, that Liz Stanley from Georgetown University is beginning to implement with them. So it is a part of resiliency training and trying to inoculate them a little bit from post-traumatic stress. But when you look and you see the average Marine stays in the Marine five or six years, and then they go back to whatever community it is that they came from or back to some community, so they're going to learn mindfulness and then go back into that community and maybe become a teacher at that school. I mean, over time, we can begin, and I don't think it has to be all that long, where we begin to infuse this from hopefully by stimulating this from the federal level with research, continuing to do the research at National Institutes of Health for long-term, a 10-year longitudinal study for healthcare outcomes based on uh, people who practice mindfulness. How do we do it within schools and really begin to beef up studying how our schools look? Then, then our you know, th this whole thing for me has been how do we get back to the kind of country that, and I'm very biased, that my grandparents had. You know, my grandfather would go to work, he'd get home at 3 o'clock, he'd go to the garden. That's the first thing he would do. He'd go putz around in the garden, and then he would have a happy hour with his brother-in-laws who all lived within the neighborhood. And they would have a couple glasses of wine and, you know, laugh and visit. And then they would have a family dinner together. And then the next day they would do the same thing. And I think part of the anxiety that we talked about at the beginning of the program is this fact that we're so disconnected. We think we're connected. In some ways, we are more connected, but we're not really connected in the way that uh, they were, where 
It was family dinner. It was intimate times with each other. And how do we create a society that I think mindfulness can help us move back into that direction and say, wait a minute, what am I on the what am I in the rat race for? Is this really that important? What's most important to most people is time with people that they care about. And I think mindfulness can begin to move us back into that direction a little bit, really reconnect with each other. I, I totally concur with you, sir. Right, you do an excellent job, in my view, in your book, uh, fitting self-reliance and selfless gratitude together. Um, you know, flesh that idea out for us, will you? What do you mean by selfless gratitude? Well, I, you know, just a general, uh, I think, appreciation for, um, you know, people who have, have, have been helpful to you. And the people who have been selfless, and and I've learned this growing up. I went to Catholic schools my whole life, and and watched a lot of teachers who were very very skilled make a lot less money than a public school teacher because of what they believed the Catholic schools could do. And to me, that was an example. Even even the teachers that weren't so hot were still living that example of. Um, something there's something more important here uh, that I'm willing to sacrifice some money for in order to live this kind of life and instill these kind of values into kids. I saw coaches who did that all the time and put in tons of time to help develop me as an athlete or my team uh, and spend time away from their own families to you know, instilled these kind of things. I was, I just grew up very blessed that I had a lot of people around me, starting with my grandparents and my mother, who made a lot of sacrifices for me, and a lot of sacrifices for my brother. That looking back, I, you know, the older you get, you're like, wow, I was really blessed to be surrounded by so many people who cared about me and were willing to sacrifice their own stuff in order to do it. And I think that was one of the. Uh, that was the, really the beginning of, I think, my call to public service, too, uh, is that my mom worked at the church festival. My grandfather was an usher. You know, uh, he he uh, he ran the beer tent at the festival. My mom was a volunteer here, there, at home and school and all of that. Life was about being selfless. And it. When I remember playing sports, too, and watching athletes that I started to look up to about the guys who weren't the ball hogs. They were the guys who passed the ball and shared and and everything. I just grew up that way. And I think when you look at when our country is at its best, it's the greatest generation. It's the sacrifices that they not only made at war, but that they made after the war and in building a lot of different institutions. There was a spirit that it was okay and demanded by one young president to ask not you know, to yes. participate in the government. To This is a noble undertaking. We're talking about the Peace Corps. We're talking about VISTA. We're talking about being a, a, a government servant of a public servant. And that was noble back then. It was called upon. And I think we've gotten away from that. And I think, you know, not to be romantic about it, but I think there is some call that we need to have again to say, okay, how are we going to retool these institutions? How are we going to rebuild our, our civil society? How are we going to rebuild our neighborhoods? Well, we need a lot of people that aren't going to be in it for the money. 
you know, we got, we got a lot of people who we need a lot of people who aren't going to say, oh, I'm going to go to Wall Street and I'm going to do the high finance gig. And instead of engineering new manufacturing products, uh, it could be high end manufacturing. I'm going to manufacture some credit default swap uh, and some gimmick and use my intelligence that way. And look where that ended. So we need this call again. And I, I think mindfulness, if we're, if we're all paying enough attention, and I do see it with young kids. I do see it with the college students that I interact with. There really is a desire um, to do something other than just make money. And, I, and that's why I'm so optimistic about what mindfulness can do, because I think it can connect us to each other and really allow us to feel that reward that we have when we take care of each other. And it, it shouldn't be that far off because I think it's a basic human instinct. So are you suggesting, Congressman Ryan, I mean, I love what you're saying, but are you suggesting that genuine self-reliance includes, like the opposite side of the coin, selfless gratitude? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of great literature out there now and great books like uh, Born to Be Good by Dr. Keltner uh, out at uh, UC Berkeley and a lot more of an understanding of uh, us having this, our, our survival is really geared towards the way we are able to interact with each other and have compassion and have empathy and be able to communicate. These yeah, I love the way you say that. And the fact of the matter is, if, if self-reliance, if we take a step further than Emerson and we look at our modern world, as you have suggested, if self-reliance includes our own health care, our own optimal health, the research that exists, that proliferates nearly on a daily basis, showing us how important these characteristics of gratitude, of, uh, of going to the aid of another person, of forgiveness, of, of mindfulness, how important they are to our overall health and well-being. I think you've made a, a really novel connection there that, uh, you know, as an, I mean, you just own this one as an author. I will be quoting you. Self-reliance and selfless gratitude are opposite sides of the same coin, period. I yep. love how you put that, sir. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I've got to touch on this one. I have to because tonight's the big debate, right? Right. And Candy Crowley is monitoring it, and Candy Crowley is a regular meditator. Did you know that? I did. I did. Yes. Well, now, so what's your take on what's going to be the difference between having a monitor, a moderator, that is a regular meditator who deals in mindfulness of the kind you're talking about and say what we might otherwise expect in tonight's debate? Well, I think... I'm anticipating that she'll be uh, maybe more able uh, to keep things on track. I think it was, you know, I don't know if the last debate is uh, exactly a barometer, but things can very easily get thrown off into another direction by a comment that the uh, w one of the candidates may make. And it'll be interesting to see if Candy could say, well, I know you just said that, but wait a minute, let's get back to the point here, you know, it would now will candy have a better, uh, capacity to do that or not? I don't know. It'd be interesting to watch, but I've, I've heard her talk about how beneficial it has been for her 
Um, and in fact, I gave uh, President Obama a copy of my book. He was at Kent State University, which is in my district in Ohio, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And he looked at it, read the cover, and it's, uh, uh, you know, reduce stress, improve, the subtitle is reduce stress, improve performance, and help us recapture the American spirit. He read it. I was looking at him to see what his reaction would be. And he looked at me, he says, this is good. This is about helping our kids get their minds right, right? And I said, yes, sir. Exactly right. He says, Well, this is good. I look forward to reading it. So he has a copy of A Mindful Nation. Um, let's hope maybe he reads it. <laughs> Before tonight. Okay, now I'm not touching that. Okay, listen. Uh, I liked your approach, uh, especially with regard to health care. Uh, I'm a, you know, one of those folks that had triple bypass, and I'll tell you uh, the difference that it makes in, in recovery when you're doing regular meditation. Um, and all my cardio people were very supportive of that. I mean, they recommend that it is, is, is huge, but for a lot of people, meditation is not something that, that they can learn out of a book. They really need maybe some teacher to do that. What's your, what's your feeling with regard to insurance companies? Should, should people, should healthcare insurance cover things that are proactive, such as teaching people mindful training? I personally think they should, and I think what has happened, not to get in a big uh, political discussion about health care reform, but I think one of the keys to the individual mandate of everyone having to get health care, which originally was a Republican idea that was adopted by Democrats, so I think it has some bipartisan uh, support. support. But one of the things that it does is it changes the business model for an insurance company. So prior to everyone having to have health care, an insurance company could make money by saying, well, we're not going to cover that. Uh, oh, on the fine print in the insurance policy says we're not going to cover that. So they, they could actually work to make sure that they don't have to cover you, and that would help them make money. Now, you're almost married to an insurance company, and and so the insurance company now is the the business model changes, and the insurance company now has a vested interest in keeping you healthy. And so I think as the science continues to come online, and many insurance companies begin to see this as a fruitful investment for them to help keep their clients healthy, I think you will begin to see more and more insurance companies begin to cover uh, people learning mindfulness-based stress reduction and other forms of uh, of, of mindfulness because it's, you know, they, they do the math. It's, it's going to keep their stress level down. I heard a one, one economist say uh, how you're starting to see insurance companies uh, get more involved into school lunches and to the food that the school uh, districts feed their kids. And if you're an insurance company that's covering a lot of families that live in a certain school system, his example was, uh, the insurance company won't see a tater tot sitting on their uh, on a kid's lunch plate. Uh, insurance company will see that tater tot, and they'll think of a four hundred thousand dollar medical bill for diabetes that they're going to have to pay one day for that kid. So they now have an interest in um, making making sure there's healthy food. So I think we're going to see a huge shift in the role insurance companies play towards wellness. And I think that will include uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and that will include also uh, what kind of diets uh, 
you know they're they're pushing in schools and other places too. All right, we're running short on time. I want to make sure first of all that we get some basic business in, Congressman. Uh, our listening audience wants to learn more about you, learn more about your book. Uh, where do you tell them to? How do they, how do they contact you? How do they find out more? Well, you could just uh, Google uh, a mindful nation and uh, and you know go on to our uh, web page. We have a Facebook mindful nation uh, Facebook. Uh, we do some tweeting from uh, from our mindful nation, uh, and you know just check it out. And I, what we've been trying to do really is update constantly update um, the science that's coming in uh, through our website. So you know I don't know three, four, five times a week if I see an article that I read like the one you mentioned about uh, increased uh, compassion or how compassion practice can increase your empathy. I post that on on a Mindful Nation website and on our Facebook page. So we're always updating. Is and it's like, I mean, there's five, six, seven, eight articles I'll find over the course of a week that's beginning to uh, illuminate what mindfulness is doing in all of these different areas. Um, there's another great magazine that's coming out called uh, Mindful. It's another great web page that deals with secular mindfulness what it's doing in leadership areas, what it's doing in uh, the military, what it's doing in health, education, all of these different areas. So I would just say, hey, go to go to mindfulnation.org or, uh, or Mindful uh, Magazine and, uh, and check it out. And there's a lot out there, and there's a lot of science backing it up, which to me in America is really the exciting part, is science is beginning to support this stuff. And as science supports it, more and more Americans are going to come online, and I think it really can help us you know, recapture the American spirit. I so totally agree with you. We're out of time, but I have to I have to leave this. On page 179 of your book, you have a kindness practice, and you basically say you can learn to open your heart and cultivate kindness and goodwill toward others and yourself through practices that send out sincere good wishes to all. Well, I, I can't think of a better way to leave it, Congressman. Uh, on that, uh, all of us send out sincere good wishes to all. We've come to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And if you have comments on our show, do let us all know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember... Believing in yourself always matters.